This is Alex Pearson. I say in a very nonpartisan way, let's investigate all interference by Beijing and other authoritarian dictatorships in Canada that, that they've done out in Canada, and let's invite everybody to testify, investigate all the parties. I have no problem with that because I'm 100% serene in knowledge that our, uh, I, I would never accept uh, foreign interference in my political party and that everyone should be held accountable if they've allowed it in theirs. Holly ever doubling down on an investigation into election interference no matter the party it gets into. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, March 13th. Happy uh, March break for most of you out there. Hopefully it's uh, gotten off to a good start. Certainly has been a very busy last couple of days. Not sure if you uh, watched the Oscars, got some sleep, or found yourself, like most of us, I think, uh, polling around the office as everyone was awake around 2 o'clock in the morning staring at the ceiling. So might be a little bit of a tired Monday, but nonetheless, we'll get you into gear because there's lots to chew on. And we'll chew on something that always seems to happen late on a Friday. And then, of course, you know, it doesn't get the attention it needs. So we must revisit it Monday. And it has been an absolute whirlwind of headlines when it comes to, you know, the tentacles of Chinese interference as it comes into sharp view of how deep and wide this issue is. With the tentacles now reaching into Premier Ford's world and news that Vincent Kuh is said to be connected to this clandestine operation Sam Cooper's been reporting on, which is that these Chinese operatives in Toronto, according to his allegations, are said to have funneled money into this network of 11 candidates tasked to interfere in our 2019 election. And Ke is the MPP from Don Valley North, which just happens to be the very same riding that elected Liberal MP Handong, the other name revealed in Sam Cooper's reporting. But the allegations are that Ke served as a financial middleman in Chinese interference schemes and allegedly received around $50,000 from the consulate in Toronto that was channeled through a series of middlemen. Did he know? Was he unwilling or unknowing pawn? Was he involved? We do not know. And he's not saying. False accusation. This is racist. I told him in the email already. You say it's racist? Why is it it's racist? It's racist because I was born in China, because I come from China. So Ku was nominated under Patrick Brown, but ended up getting elected back under Ford. And now he's sidelined with his resignation coming in before the dinner hour Friday. And so Ford did the only thing he could and should have. And what Trudeau refused to do with his MP, which is to cut ties with Ku. And that, that I think, is the only acceptable answer. But Ford cannot stop there because we need to know what files this MPP worked on, what policy did they have a say in, who else is working alongside of him. I mean, we need to know. And I think Ford should be forcing the prime minister's hand to make sure that happens because it's very clear that none of the political parties are safe. You know, some are going to look at this and say, you know, it's a partisan moment to say, look at the conservatives now. Well, you're not looking at the bigger threat. Because the United Front has infiltrated anything and everything it can. And they've been infiltrating our university research labs where we give them access to our top secrets. There's the whole Winnipeg lab boondoggle 
we still know nothing about. They've got police stations set up here in the GTA, BC, now Quebec. You know, they have flooded our country with fentanyl, money laundering, you name it. There are a lot of tentacles to this thing. And now we know that they've easily worked their way into the upper echelons of our power structures, where they've easily infiltrated, you know, the Chinese-friendly Liberal Party to keep conservatives out and make sure Chinese foreign policy remains Beijing-friendly, and they've now infiltrated the conservatives to work against them from within, while making sure they, too, keep Chinese policy in favor of China. So they have no bounds, and Sam Cooper has been very uh, blunt in his warnings that there is more to come, and no political party will be spared. Sam Cooper announced on Twitter over the weekend that he's gone on vacation for the week for March break, and... uh, I swear to God, I heard politicians cheering for a minute across this country. But, you know, two of these politicians were elected in the exact same riding of Don Valley North. So that right there suggests there needs to be an investigation into what I don't think can be seen as a coincidence. We need to know who ran those campaigns. Where are those people working now? And are there any Chinese police stations in this particular area? Because we've got a big problem here. We've got system-wide cancer running through our politics. And I think it needs to be looked at from every angle, whether it's every party, every riding. Go right into the nominations where clearly the odds are being stacked and manipulated, you know, in favor of certain candidates or activist groups that want to push their agenda and not Canada's. And no, politicians will not welcome any light on, you know, the party's tricks of the electoral trade. But there have long been headlines about rigged races and stacking the decks to one candidate's advantage or another. And we either have rules and fairness in elections or we don't. And right now that is very, very questionable. So this isn't about a right or left issue, which this has become, which then just deflects all the attention away from the threat. And of course, only serves China's interest. They love it when we're sitting here bickering and not talking about things. But you only look to Australia. They face this threat as well, and they moved, you know, immediately to expel the spy rings in their country. Diplomats were kicked out. They put in a foreign registry. They did a whole bunch of things. They launched education campaigns. They have been dealing with this for years, and now they're warning us, look, you cannot let this fester. You've got to be transparent And they say, look, fighting this threat is their number one priority because it's, you know, grown into such a pervasive threat. The level of foreign interference that is currently uh, that we're experiencing in Australia now is at its highest than ever before. And that includes the Cold War. So we are seeing a tremendous ratcheting up of uh, uh, foreign influence and foreign interference, more particularly in Australian politics today at unprecedented levels. That's Australian MP Andrew Wallace, who was on the West Block with uh, Eric Sorensen over the weekend, and they're years ahead of us. Like, they've been working on this for years. And we're just starting to peel back the onion now. And they're saying, you cannot wait. And I've heard this now in at least two interviews with Chinese, uh, with uh, Australian officials. So we'll wait and see what the day brings, which I'm sure will be a whole lot of politics. But uh, I just want this thing investigated. I don't care what the party, I don't care who the politician is. We need to clean house. And of course, in all of this noise, with all the distraction, remains the very key question. 
What did the prime minister know about this threat? What did he do with it after getting two warnings? Did he warn other parties that this was happening? Did he warn the premier that there was trouble within his party? These are all things we need to know. And of course, the more stories coming out, and they come out every single day, that distraction uh, covers that uh, question up, but it needs to be answered. I met Vincent Kerr uh, a number of years ago, I'd say about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, because he was nominated under Patrick Brown, and at that time, I was out of this business, and I was uh, doing a contract for Brown's campaign for the party side, but uh, I ended up media training him and the other candidates. But this was not an issue back then, certainly wasn't uh, brought up, but that's why the name was instantly recognizable to me. But the nominations have to be a part of any investigation here because we have a very big problem with the nomination process. And that's got to be cleaned up because it's not just China, it's Iran, Russia. There's a whole bunch of special interest groups that get involved and that I, 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 I would like to see change. I don't know if it will, but it does need to if we truly want to get to the bottom of this. dive into this because we keep getting these headlines it was a uh, first it was google and then of course on friday because everything happens on friday uh, meta warns that it too is going to block canadian news if the trudeau government moves ahead with its current law that is put forward on modernizing the broadcast act and you say well who cares why do i care about that well you need to because we got a, a, this government has a couple of laws before the House. I got C11, which I've talked about a lot, which would control what streaming and content we consume on the internet. And then you've got C18, which is behind C11, but it's to modernize the Broadcast Act. And they're both sold as that, you know, getting all these new technologies in place and rooting out all the misinformation and, you know, putting Canadian content first and then forcing the companies to pay for it. But these companies, these. Social media companies have been very clear. They are not going to pay for Canadian news. They don't care. They'll find something else to run. So this will not hurt the social media companies, but I can assure you it will further crush independent and local news content uh, and have a lot of um, ripple-off effects. So let me bring in Dr. Brett Carraway to the conversation, associate professor with the Institute of Communications, Culture, Information, and Technology over at the U of T. Good to have you, doctor. Good morning. All right, C11 has been, um, you know, it's going to get pushed through, but it's been fought every step of the way. It's going to get through, though. And then we've got C18, which I think is almost just as messy with this government the way it is. Um, you know, how do you view C-18 and, and the updates that they're doing this and how it will, the impact it will be for, for regular old Canadians? Well, you know, I, I come on this program fairly often and complain about Facebook and Google and Twitter. <laughs> um, so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the platforms. Yeah. But having said that, I, I think this is a very wrong-headed way to try and deal with the problem yeah. uh, of sort of the distribution of advertising revenues. You know, even if I was trying to, and here I'm just estimating in my head, don't, 
uh, take these numbers too seriously, but what, maybe out of Canadian content that's shared on a platform like Facebook, maybe upwards of 10%, if that. So we're talking about revenues that are something like, I don't know, maybe $100 million annually for platform uh, for a platform like Facebook. But we're talking about imposing a, a regulatory framework that the government itself says is going to cost Facebook and Meta something on the order, depending on who's talking, mm-hmm. $200 million or $300 million. The, the numbers just don't add up. I think that uh, a platform would just say, okay, enough's enough. We'll just keep posting cat videos, but no more CBC or no more CTV, no more, what, you know, whatever, Toronto yeah. Star. Just, we'll just <laughs> let it wither on the vine. Yeah, and and some people say, well, who cares? But you know, um, a lot of us do care because you know it, this will hurt independence. This will hurt someone like me. I don't care if I monetize it, but you want your work seen because you never know who's going to see it and where it will reach. If no one sees it, then you just kind of everyone will be in this bubble in Canada with no one even like we just won't be part of the game itself. But I mean, e- even the government they spend a fortune. All the political parties spend a fortune on these social media companies in advertising. They don't seem to care about that, but then they want to put their foot down on this and just, uh, you know, so they, they add to the problem and then they think they can solve the problem. And I think they've made it much worse with both C-18 and C-11. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree. You know, it, not only does it kind of run contrary to the the way the internet just functions at a basic level where it's about sharing information and it's, it kind of creates a new economic inefficiency by, by putting a, another gatekeeper, mm-hmm. you know, in, yeah. in the picture there, but it also even runs afoul of the spirit of copyright law, for example. So, you know, Canada is part of an international copyright regime. And part of that is allowing for quotations and uh, at least being able to reference, you know, I think about it as an academic, like if I write a paper, mm-hmm. The first 20% of the paper is me talking about all the other academics that have written on whatever topic I'm talking about. I quote them, I cite them, and, you know, I'm trying to imagine a scenario wherein I would not be allowed to do that anymore without paying those individual authors something out of, out of my paycheck, let's say. That would create a, a ridiculous inefficiency and stifle the the free flow of information in, in what I do as a researcher. And I don't think it's, you know, beyond the pale to make a similar comparison to news journalism. Mm -hmm. This is like asking for a platform to pay for links, incoming links, right? So that uh, a platform like a news media organization in Canada that's making advertising revenue by incoming links. Uh, this isn't about reproducing the article on platform, This on, on Facebook. It's about maybe a quotation, and maybe a quotation is fine. I mean, the sec- there's parts of the law that makes it look like it's about quotations. But then if the poster, the user actually makes a link so that the person can go read the article somewhere on a Canadian news site, that that's somehow... Uh, you know, something that's going to have a, what is essentially, essentially a tax yeah. on it, which yeah. just d- doesn't make sense to me. There are better ways to address this, this problem of distribution of advertising revenue. I, I understand the frustration. I just think this is the wrong solution. Yeah, I do too. I mean, the best thing the government could do is, I think, get out of the way. And if they want to fix it, then don't let CBC sell advertising uh, because they get so much money from the taxpayers. Um, but one of the yeah, arguments, and the, CD, yeah, the CDC is already getting money from the Massive. government, and now yeah. they're going to get additional money from yeah, shaking crazy. down a platform. 
It's crazy. It's crazy because they have such an advantage. But again, this is not common sense in this dealing. But they they keep pointing, doctor, that Australia's done this and it worked. I'm not so sure it worked for Australia. Well, I think the the verdict might still be out on that. I also, uh, you know, I don't I don't know exactly what brought the platforms back to the table uh, in in those negotiations. And I also know that's the land of Rupert Murdoch uh, (laughs) in Australia. So uh, I'm not sure, but I, you know, I think I think most of the politicians that I've listened to keep pointing to Australia to make the case. Hey, they're bluffing. Look, they threatened to do this in Australia, and then and in the last moment they came to the negotiating table. And I'm not at all confident that that scenario is going to play out here in in Canada. No, and I'm concerned that combined all these changes. I, I'm not concerned. I know I. I been talking about it for a while, is the the damage it will do, I think, to any uh, creator of Canadian content. Because I think people are thinking, well, this is great. It'll get my product boosted. I'm like, no, it won't. No one is going to be tuning in to find out what you've got because they won't even know to look for you. Yeah, it's not just paying for for the links, right? It's even paying for like search returns on Google or any sort of ranking. Like it'll it'll create a blind spot for Canadian journalistic content on the internet. And that doesn't, that doesn't help this situation. No, it doesn't. So where do you see C-18 going? Because it is, it is further behind C-11, which I think will be dragged across. I, ho- I hope to God something happens at the last minute and falls apart, but it's not. It's probably, it'll get pushed across the line. But where do you see C-18 going? Well, I just, I mean, I, I honestly don't know at this stage, but I'm just hoping that enough people start talking about this and drawing attention to some of the more problematic aspects of this. Um, and, and, and maybe if there was greater public awareness about kind of how the more problematic sides to this particular bill, maybe um, we could hit the brakes. But I honestly don't know how it's going to turn out. I, I thought that with Bill C-11, but, you know, I don't think it's going to be until Canadians are affected and all of a sudden they're saying, well, I'm a Canadian. Why can't I get my stuff seen? I mean, it's almost one of those things where they have to be hit all of a sudden with it where they realize, oh, What's going on here? But it'll be too late by then. I know Pierre Paul well, says he'll reverse was, it, but... Yeah, I was hoping <laughs> when Google was running its experiment of cutting off uh, Canadian news content that maybe enough people would take note, but it doesn't appear to have been that way yet. We will see. Stay tuned on this one. Very much appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, always happy to be here. That's uh, Dr. Brett Carraway joining us from over at the U of T. Uh, look, again, it's going to affect everyone, whether it's the media in the big uh, mainstream or the independent that you like. And certainly with C-11, it's a censorship bill. And with all this Chinese interference, you wonder who got, who gave this idea? Uh, gee, I wonder. But this is, uh, none, neither of these bills is good for Canadian content produced by anyone. Left, right, center, whatever. Terrible. So if you want to speak up, now is the time. excited that the uh, Toronto courtroom is opening. I have waited 
This is something that when I was working the courts, when I started my career, that they were talking about. That's a long time ago. It's over uh, 25 years ago that they were talking about getting a new courtroom downtown. And it is now on the verge of opening and starting to move in and get ready. But um, a lot of people are concerned or some are concerned about how this court, which is going to move all the courthouses into it, most of them anyway, um, into this one location. But how will it deal with youth crime? which right now happens at a very small court, which you would not even probably know if you drove by it, over on Jarvis Street. And, um, and this new model does not have a dedicated youth court, and so a lot of people are worried that this will upend a system that is fairly streamed, streamlined, where you've got you know judges that follow these cases, the same cases, they get to know the families, they get to know the family issues, they get to know the trauma, um, and, and are seen as those who are best to gauge what would make sense as a punishment and make sure that the accused in question has a second chance to succeed and not reoffend. So why at the last minute would all these headaches be emerging now? Let us find out. Rachel Lickman is a, Lickman is a criminal lawyer, founder over at Lightman Law. She joins us now. Thanks so much, Rachel, for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. All righty. So, look, Jarvis was never a court that I loved going to. I thought it was always very difficult. So I was very excited to have it all move into one building. But you and a few other lawyers are, are concerned the fact that, you know, there will not be a streamlined process. Where do things stand now? So this is a good question. I was just speaking to a youth crowd and they were explaining to me that, when the Jarvis Courthouse, the criminal matters there merge with the amalgamated Toronto Courthouse on Armory Street, what's going to happen is the judges at 311 Jarvis are not going to move over. They're going to stay at 311 Jarvis and deal with the family matters and custody matters. And there's not going to be any special judges that deal with only youth matters. And there's also not going to be any crowns that deal with just youth matters. You're going to have crowns that have dealt with adult matters Mm -hmm. their entire lives and never touched a youth file, all of a sudden now have to deal with youth files. And the same goes for the judges. The only specialized court they will have for youth, I've been advised, is for youth mental health court. But other than that, it's just going to be with judges and crowns that may have never heard of the Youth Criminal Justice Act and really don't know how to apply it to the cases before them. So given that this is not an overnight project, I mean, this has been talked about forever, or it seems like it, you know, you just start kind of take a step back and you think, well, why wouldn't they have factored this in? Because I would think, and I know how lawyers are, you all talk, these concerns would be shared around. And at what point um, does someone look at the planning of how the court will be laid out to say, okay, look, we can put youth court in this particular area. Um, we would assign these particular judges. Like, how come it's not been a part of the conversation so that when this court opens, all these kinds of issues are worked out? Or is it just a matter of time before these things are worked out? Oh, that's a very good question. And from what I understand from speaking to different crowns and different colleagues is this this decision to go ahead like this without these specialized youth courts, without having the proper judges coming to the new courthouse, it seems like this was a very last minute thing. And I, you know, if you've been following this new courthouse throughout the entire process, there's been many hiccups. Yes. There's been many issues. And it doesn't seem like it was planned out very well. And I think that the issue of youth court and how that's going to work was a very last minute thing that was just 
imposed and people were just told. It doesn't seem like at any point it was a conversation. Um, I've spoken with other lawyers that practice in the area of youth and on both on the family and the criminal side, and they're very upset by this. And we, I was talking to them about what can we do about this. And really, there's not many people that are listening to our concerns. And I think the reason for that is because the people that are in charge of this have not dealt with a lot of youth crime and have not dealt with the Youth Criminal Justice Act, and they don't appreciate how different it is, how nuanced it is, and how important that is for our system to keep moving forward and for our youth. Yeah. Well, there's a number, I think, of, of uh, complexities here. Um, you know, you would think in a building like this, because so much money has been spent and it's such an enormous building, and the idea of it is to streamline all the court services so that you're not driving all over the city of Toronto and having to deal with that. Um, why wouldn't they set it out that you've got a floor dedicated to bail hearings, you've got the youth uh, criminal section, you've got the mental health criminal sec- uh, this section, and then the criminal case. Like, there's a way it could be built if it was just streamlined. I agree with you completely. And I mean, right now, bail matters are not going to be dealt with at the new courthouse. Bail matters are uh, well, going to be dealt with. How are bail hearings not? Uh, bail is like, <laughs> how is that possible? Doesn't that defeat the <laughs> whole purpose? Be- the Etobicoke Courthouse, the 2201 Finch Courthouse, is going to be the bail center. And that's all where bail? All Toronto, yes, all oh, Toronto bails are going to be dealt with there, yes. And I, they are also going to be setting up some plea courts there, just in case if people are in custody oh. and would want to plead guilty. So they will have that available with judges' courts there. But all bails are going to be out of 2201 Finch. That's crazy. And... Yeah, sorry. I'm just, I'm just, matters. yeah, yeah, because that would that would drive me crazy. I'm so glad I'm not coming yeah. to the courts all of a sudden. But that means you have to drive all the way up to one court. Like, what? Anyway, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll continue. Go on. So, I mean, and that's also the problem though with the whole amalgamated courthouse, right? Because it's not by area anymore. So you're going to have people, you know. Just for example, the bail court that's at 2201, you're mm-hmm. going to have sureties coming from very, very far, mm-hmm. like within the city, not around Etobicoke, that have to come to the courthouse for the bail. But, you know, back to the question, why wasn't this contemplated before? Why wasn't there a full floor for it? From my understanding, listen, I wasn't a part of the planning, but from my understanding, based on what's happening right now, is there just wasn't importance placed on that, which is very, very sad because I, I know that they are system has been such an inspiration internationally that we do have a specialized youth court, that we had people coming in from around the world internationally to look at 311 Jarvis, to go there and to see how youth court works, because it is such a great model. So it's very upsetting for me to see what's happening and to also see that no one's doing anything about this. Yeah, look, I mean, we needed to streamline it. We've just got uh, courthouses that some of them are just awful to go into. They, they, I'm glad to see that they're they're putting one central location. But this, to me, is just common sense. So, is is your mind, Rachel, that um, the judges in in question that deal with these cases have they got any say in this? Is this something that can be massaged out? Because I think the move is in about three or four weeks, but they they have to kind of remedy this because the cases aren't stopping. And we can't have them piling up on each other. But there are certain areas of concern that have not been yet ironed out, whether that's for gang violent crime and that kind of stuff dealing with that. But the youth court is in a category of its own. It really is in a category of its own. And I think that's the problem, that the people that are planning this new courthouse are not seeing that and not appreciating that. They see it as it's all criminal matters. And they're not understanding that the way you deal with youth matters is completely different. For example, I was before... 
a judge that only dealt with adult matters, dealing with a youth matter, and I had to explain to him different programming and processes that are available for youth. And and that's not okay, right? When I'm not supposed to be explaining that to a judge. And it's not to put any fault on the judge, but if you're not working within the youth criminal justice system, you don't know these things. And judges that are going to be dealing with the youths and sentencing them and deciding what is best for society in the youth's rehabilitation need to be aware of this. And they're not going to be because there's no way for them to know about it if they're not really being immersed in the youth criminal justice system. Yeah. Stay tuned on this. I mean, maybe it's just a matter of um, kind of moving some parts around or maybe (laughs) just getting the spotlight on it. But uh, it's a really great opportunity to streamline things, but it does have to be done properly. So we'll uh, keep an eye on it. Rachel, I appreciate you uh, chatting with us. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. There you go. That's Rachel Lickman, uh, who is one of the um, criminal lawyers over at Lickman Law. And, And she's right. Um, You have to have these things together and it would totally make sense to bring the same staff over. Same with mental health courts. They're, they're, They're all different in their own way, but they have to be run right. And the fact that they're putting bail courts now in a completely different courtroom and way up north is, um, like if you're going to streamline it to downtown, then put it at Old City Hall where it's running now. Again, seems like a lot of afterthought thinking on something that has literally been in the works for decades. And uh, we'll wait and see on this. But I, I, I am very excited to have a new courtroom in this city. We knew, we do need it, but it does have to be done right. All righty, that will do it for us today. We'll see what the day brings so we can chew on it. I thank you very much for listening and, of course, for bringing us into your life. I'll thank Heather Purton as well as Corey Manuel. And we'll uh, be back here bright and early Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening here on 640 Toronto.